Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. So we are in a series called Church on Monday, Jesus in the Streets. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide a quick week, a quick, oh, the prayer didn't work. Maybe you should pray. <laughs> a quick recap. That's what I'm going to provide. Um, for those of us who, who maybe weren't here last week, as I said to a couple pastor friends of mine uh, after last Sunday, I said, listen, um, if Easter Sunday is our Super Bowl when everybody shows up, then the Sunday after Easter is the disc golf championship, and people just don't care, and they stay home. So if you didn't get to hear this because you weren't with us online, I'm just going to give you a bit, of a bit of a walkthrough with what we covered last week, okay? The church has a mission. The church of God has a mission, and that mission is to bring people who are far from God near to God. Colossians 5.18 calls this the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling the world to God. And the other thing we learned together last week is that the church is not a building. The church is not an institution. The church is who? Us. We are the church. So when Paul writes about the church, when Jesus says, the gates of hell will not stand against my church, he is not talking about an institution. He is talking about people. He is talking about you, and he is talking about me. And so in order for the church, you and I, to fulfill our mission, our ministry, our work of bringing people far from God near to God, we said last week that we have to live incarnationally. Living incarnationally is just kind of a big Bible word for being God with skin, that we represent God to people wherever we go. Now, we also said in order to live incarnationally and able to relate to, in, able, in order to relate to people like God with skin, there are some things that we have to do. The first thing we said we had to do is we have to redefine ministry, what it is, who it's for, and where it takes place. The word ministry has been kind of relegated to the church realm, but the word ministry simply means work. So I have to ask myself, is ministry something that happens to me on Sunday, or is ministry something that I do throughout the week? My particular perspective is our Sunday gatherings should be where we come to get refreshed, we get refilled, we get cared for, we get taught, We have community and fellowship, and then we go out into the community beyond these walls to do the actual ministry that God teaches about. So also, to live incarnationally, uh, we have to redefine church. What is its identity and what is its function? What is a church? Historically, we've gotten to the place where we've thought about churches in terms of an institution, but the word church in Greek is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia means a gathering of people who have been called out. And it's a gathering of people who share a common identity and a common purpose. So the church is not an institution. It's not a building. It's not a series of meetings. The church is a group of men, women, and children who share a common identity, the lordship of Jesus, and a common mission or purpose, which is to reconcile the world to God. To live incarnationally, uh, individual believers have to redefine their reason for being part of a church community. Am I here, and we touched on this briefly, am I here to be served or am I here to serve? Am I here to be catered for? To, am I here, and sometimes, honestly, this is probably the case, am I here so for 65 minutes somebody else can take care of my kids and I can just breathe? Or am I here 
to be prepared to be built up and to be sent out for the work that God has prepared for me. Ephesians 4.12 says that those who are teachers or preachers or shepherds have a job. And it's to prepare God's people for works of service. That word service is the same word translated elsewhere as ministry, as in ministry of reconciliation. Number four, um, to live incarnationally, individual believers must redefine their reason for work. My job, is my job part of a mission? Is it a pathway to a paycheck? Or is it both? Could it be that God in his infinite wisdom has not only landed me in a place where I can provide for myself and those I love, but has also placed me somewhere where I can join him on his mission? If you ever wonder why you don't get a job, I would have you ask yourself this question. Could it be at least in part because God has another place that he wants to plant me? If God is Lord of the church and he places the members of his church where he wants them, that means that God has a strategic idea of where he wants to place you. And so if we are going to be partnering with God, then we also have to be aware that he is going to have a say in where we land. And the last thing is reestablish, we have to reestablish the distinction between profession, which is how I earn my paycheck, and vocation, which is my destiny, what I am called to. And you and I are called together to be on a mission with Jesus. Now, one more thing I want to tell you before we get into the message for this morning, because that was just a recap. I am convinced that the enemy of your soul, the devil, kind of sits back, and if we find out that Jesus loves us, he kind of goes, okay, I can live with that. If we find out that Jesus has forgiven us, he can kind of go, okay, I can kind of live with that. But when we become, we come to the place where we begin to uncover and discover the fact that God has an assignment and a mission and a destiny for us, and that part of the purpose for which he has saved us is to bring other people into relationship with him, then the devil gets a little bit agitated because now we're messing with something that he wants to do. His entire being is trying to separate mankind from God who loves them. And God, in his wisdom, has planted you and I here to bring people far from God close to God. Why would I say that this morning? Because I want you to be aware in your spirit about that. And over the next three, four, five weeks, if it starts feeling to you like it's harder than normal to get to church, you may just need to stand up on the inside and go, not today, Satan. You are not keeping me from uncovering what God has for me. You are not going to rob me of my destiny as a daughter of Christ. You are not going to rob me of my assignment as a priest of the kingdom of God. I am going to press in and I'm going to press through. And in the name of Jesus, you get thee behind me, Satan. Some of us on Sunday mornings are going to have to buck up buttercup, have a little bit of an attitude and tell the devil where he can go. You understand me? So you can decide that you are going to invest in your spiritual development or formation and formation or we can decide we're just going to stay in bed and pretend we watched online. You do what you want to do, but I do not want you to be unaware, as Paul would say, of the devil's schemes, that we actually do have an adversary, and he does not want you to discover, uncover, or live in the fullness of your destiny in Christ. Do you hear me? Okay. And part of your destiny in Christ, as his church, as his body, is to be able to live your lives in such a way that you are incarnating the presence of Christ in culture. All right, 
That was for free, not in the notes. <laughs> the last thing we talked about that I want you to keep in mind as we begin to shift toward this morning's message after an eight-minute introduction uh, is the idea of strategic placement, this idea that God places you where he wants you because we're going to shift our conversation to something I'm calling the radical relocation of God. And this is part of the overarching story of God that we find again beginning back in the Old Testament. And it's critical for the Monday morning church to understand how God has so dynamically and so radically changed his location. Because when we begin to understand what God has done and that it is a part of his plan that he put into effect before eternity began, then we realize this is a really big deal. This is an awesome privilege and an incredible assignment. And so Paul is trying to explain to some friends of his in the book of Colossians, in your notes it says 1 Corinthians, it's Colossians, I'm sorry. And this is what he begins to describe to them. This is where the story just gets so, so good. Paul says, I've become its servant. And he's talking about the gospel, the message that we have a king. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. And then he describes the word of God in its fullness this way. He says, it's a mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but it's now disclosed to the Lord's people. So God has had something in mind. God has had something in his heart, his intent for ages, centuries, generations that was mysterious. Guys couldn't fully understand how God was ever really going to take up residence with his people. But now, he says, it's been disclosed to those who know Jesus. And to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. And then he defines the mystery as Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, you and I can take this for granted because some of us were raised in the church and we had the Sunday school teacher that said, you know, Invite Jesus to live in your heart. He comes inside of you. He lives with you. And we go, well, yeah, that makes perfect sense. It did not make perfect sense for a first century Jew. The idea that God, the omnipotent creator of heavens and earth, would somehow take upon himself the ability to indwell mankind was so far outside of their realm of thinking that Paul calls it a mystery. But it has always been God's intent. So where does God reside? He says to them, he resides in you. And Jerry Cook says, if the church is people and Christ lives in them, then there has been a radical relocation of God. It has not always been this way. This is a, this is a byproduct. This is made possible through the act of new creation. And so to tell you the story, I want you to think of how God related to mankind kind of in three different stages. These are, these are post-sin stages. So we know that Adam and Eve walked in close proximity with God in the garden. Said he would walk, they would talk with him in the cool of the day. But sin came and separated man and woman from God's presence. And so God became, stage one, God out there. God didn't give up on mankind. He still loved us, but because we had separated uh, ourselves from him relationally, he had to break into our reality. And so he calls a man named Abraham, and he calls a man named Moses, and, and he raises a people called the people of Israel, and, and he gives them Torah, the law of God. He gives them the tabernacle where God's presence would be, and then later, the temple. And the place, the temple, in in Jewish thinking, was, was that place where heaven and earth met, 
where God's realm and man's realm interconnected. And I want you to hold on to that thought because God wasn't done with that at the tabernacle or the temple. He would, he would reveal to them through the law the character of God. They would see in his presence in the tabernacle or the temple the presence of God. So they had the character of God, the presence of God, but not proximity to God. And God out there would have to come upon their sacrifices or he would come upon the prophets and they would prophesy. He would send manna or he would send fire. He's caring for them, providing for them, but he is always distant. We can see in these stories that he is real and that he is holy, but we also see that we are sinful. And so we come to the end of the Old Testament at an impasse. We're aware of our sins and we're aware of the holiness of God, but we can't get any closer to him. But God's not done. So we move from stage three, God out there, stage one, excuse me, God out there to stage two, God with us. We have the story of Emmanuel. Jesus, to us a baby is born, a a son is given. This is the incarnation. As God wraps himself in skin and he comes to us saying, I want to be with you. And Jesus, coming in human form, comes to reveal God. So when he steps into our reality, God himself steps into three dimensions to relate to us. He is now with us. And he tells anyone who would listen, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. But God, wrapped in skin, doesn't look like what people are expecting. He doesn't come to judge. In John chapter 3, he is so explicit that he doesn't come to condemn. He, he shows mercy and love. He's, he's patient and he's long-suffering. This is not the God that people had expected. And he wanted to be crystal clear, so he tells his disciples in Matthew 20, he says, listen, you know that the Gentiles lorded over them. Excuse me, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them, this top-down thing. Not so with you, he says. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. But he says, what I'm asking you to do, I am going to do for you. Verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus looks at his disciples, God with skin, and says, I have not come to make things better for me. I have come to make things better for you. And as you read the Gospels, Jesus keeps asking people the same question over and over and over. He asks it of the blind. He asks it of the leper. He asks it of the sick. He comes to them and he asks this very, very simple question. He says, What can I do for you? He doesn't tell them what's wrong with them. He doesn't point out their sin. He comes alongside broken people, God in human form, and says, what can I do with you, for you? Right after he finishes telling the disciples this in Matthew 20, he's walking down the street, and two blind men realize Jesus is coming by, and they start yelling at him. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stops. And I can't help but think, it's obvious they're blind. But Jesus looks at them and he says, what can I do for you? And they say, we want to see. And he heals them. This is the question that God is inviting his church, made up of men, women, and children, to ask the community in which he has placed them on his behalf. What can I do 
for you as they get to stage three. God out there, God with us, but God's not done. We get to stage three, which is God in us. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 7, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he says, you know him. He lives with you. But then he says something that would have made no sense to them. He says, but he will be in you, which is the first clue in the Gospels that we are moving from God with us to God in us, that God is somehow going to radically relocate his presence. And when he's done talking to the disciples about these things, he, he goes to the cross, he's, he's resurrected, he, he walks with them for a few days, and then, then they have this huddle outside. And he says, guys, listen, I want you to wait for the, the promise of the fathers, what he calls it. And they're like, hey, are, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? And he goes, hey, listen, it's not, uh, that's not your business. Uh, that's, that's the father's business. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and wait for the promise of the father. And you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he says, and then you'll be my witnesses. And then he leaves. And so you've got 120 people who are waiting together, and they're praying in a room, waiting for the promise of the Father, and they're not even sure what that is. And they find themselves on one of the high feast days for the people of Israel, a day called Pentecost. Now, as I tell you this story, I want you to think of it from the perspective of a first century Jew not a 21st century Lompokian, because the things that happened to them would have said something very different to them than they might say to us. So they're gathered together in the upper room and they're praying and they're waiting in obedience to what Jesus has said. And suddenly there's this bam, and there's the sound like the rushing of a mighty wind. It doesn't say the wind blows through the room. It says there's the sound of the rushing of a mighty wind. Now in Israel's history, Wind had played a very significant role. When the people of Israel are in, in Egyptian captivity and God is sending the 10 plagues to show Pharaoh, you're not God, I am. One of the plagues that he sends is a plague of locusts. And how did the locusts arrive in Egypt? They were brought by a mighty wind. And when Pharaoh finally lets his people go, they, they go outside and they find themselves on the bank of something called the Red Sea. And they can't get across it, and they can't get around it. And behind them, Pharaoh's army is coming at them. And the presence of God goes and interrupts, stops between Pharaoh's army and the people of Israel. Moses goes to the bank of the Red Sea, and he raises his staff. And if you saw the Ten Commandments, all sorts of stuff happens there, but it doesn't. That's not actually what happened. He raised his staff, he turned around, he went back to bed. And it says, all night there was the sound of the rushing of a mighty wind. And when they wake up in the morning, the Red Sea is parted and they walk across on dry land. The sound of a mighty rushing wind to the people of Israel meant the presence of a holy God. So the wind begins to blow. They hear that sound and they're like, God is here. But that's not all. After the sound of the mighty rushing wind, there is a ball or a pillar of fire that the Greek says appears in the center of the room. And like wind, fire meant some things to the people of Israel. In Exodus 19, when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, to receive the Torah, to receive the law, for 40 days and 40 nights, the fire of God rests upon that mountain. And Moses is in his presence. The fire of God falls upon their sacrifices. The, a pillar of fire rested above the tabernacle at night so the people would know God is with us. 
Fire coming into the room means God has arrived. God is present. But that's not the end of the story. From that central pillar, individuals, smaller pillars, begin to break off and come to rest on the heads of the men and women in the room. Individual people. And in that moment, they realize that the presence of God is no longer in the temple. The presence of God himself is in his people. And from this moment on, heaven and earth will meet. God's realm and men's realm will overlap, not in a tabernacle, not in a temple, not in a place. But from this moment on, they will meet in a people. And they lose their mind. We've gone from God out there to God with us to God in us. The the intimate relationship between God and his people that was broken has now been reestablished. And a group of men and women who have had this experience burst out of the doors. The church of God is born. They interact with the people of the city and others beyond the city walls. Revival breaks out and people turn to God. You might remember this part of the story. A crowd gathers and they're like, It's 9 o'clock in the morning, and these guys are all hammered. Why do they think they're drunk? My perspective, I think they are so excited and so overwhelmed and so blown away that God has deposited his very own living presence within them that they just can't contain themselves. I mean, sometimes in worship, you might get like a a little mini bunny hop out of me, like, woohoo, this is awesome. This is so much bigger. And I don't know if you've ever been to a party, but sometimes when you've been to a party and people are getting their party on, they get a little loud and crazy. So I'm not all that surprised why these people think, why they might go, I think they're drunk. I think they were so overjoyed and jubilant that guys were like, what's going on? And Peter wants to explain it to them. And so he reaches back 800 years into Israel's history to an obscure prophet named Joel. The the rabbis had not known what to do with the prophet Joel. He's a guy that that shows up one day, has a three-chapter letter that he writes, a lot of it having to do with locusts, and then he disappears. But this is the man that Peter reaches back to, and this is what he says. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood, fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What the heck? That's kind of a weird passage, right? No? Okay, I think so. But here's what I take out of that. The arrival of the Spirit of God ushers in a window of time called the last days. You and I are living in the last days. They started on the day of Pentecost. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit. They will end at a particular moment of time, but we don't know what that end date is. We just know they call it the great and the glorious day of the Lord. We know that God has opened a finite window in time 
and that he has a profound purpose for that time and says in that time, that period of time called the last days, listen, if anybody ever comes up to you freaking out going, we're living in the last days, just go, yeah, we have been for the last 2,000 years. Take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. In the last days, three things are going to take place. Here's the first one. He says, in the last days, a prophetic community is formed. I will pour out my spirit on all people, and they will prophesy. Now, when you start talking about prophecy in a church, some people get really excited, and some people get really, really nervous. Can I just say to you this morning that as I read this passage and then I watch the lives of the disciples and how they walk out this prophetic responsibility, I see that there is a difference between foretelling and forth-telling as a prophetic gift. Foretelling is tomorrow the lotto numbers are going to be A, B, C, D. So you better get these and you'll get it. This is going to happen at this point in time. Forth-telling, which is what I believe is the primary prophetic gift in the New Testament, is when people begin to communicate the truth of God in language that people can understand. And so I believe Peter is saying there is a group of people that are being commissioned who will communicate the goodness of God, the truth of God, in a way that people will understand. There had been prophets in Israel's history. We know many of their names, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah. There had been schools of prophets. First Samuel says that there were groups of prophets who would travel and would minister, but there had never been in all of Israel's history until this moment a broad community of prophets. And now we have a group of men and women who have come out from behind closed doors carrying Jesus with them who have a prophetic gift. What does that mean? Let me try to drill it down just a little bit. Throughout Israel's history, prophets had done three primary things. One, they see from God's perspective. They see what he sees. When when they look at what's going on in a country or around a community, they are looking through the lens of how God would view what is happening. Secondly, they hear from God's perspective. Often, men or women would come to a prophet and they would pour out their heart. They would share their heartache, their challenge, their need for wisdom, their need for direction. And that prophet would be listening to them through the ears of the Spirit of God. They would hear what God would hear if he was present with them the way they were. And then finally, they speak from God's perspective. Into this situation, into this environment, whatever community they're placed in, they begin to speak the things that God would speak if he was physically present. Can I take you back to the Jesus question for a moment? What is it that Jesus spoke to people over and over and over? What can I do for you? A prophetic community is not born that is going to tell people what is wrong with them, that is going to point out their sin and iniquity, or that is going to rail about circumstances. A prophetic community carrying the spirit of God, which means the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, is placed into culture to represent that part of God's character to people who are in pain. They bring God's perspective into people's reality. This is why this is important. Listen to this. Here's the second thing that happens. In the last days, the world falls apart. 
When, when you read blood, fire, billows of smoke, and heaven and earth, that's biblical language for the world's falling apart. Things are going to H-E double hockey stick in a handbasket. Like in a, some of you are like, hockey stick. Hell. Let me just help you with that. You and I can watch the news. And we could go, oh my gosh, there are wars and rumors of wars. This is going wrong. This is going, this is going. And we can, we can withdraw and go, Jesus, just come save us. The world is awful. Or we can go, wait a minute. God has placed me strategically at this point in time in this community carrying his spirit to represent specifically because the world is falling apart. That's what's supposed to happen in the last days. But it doesn't go to H-E double hockey stick in a handbasket because God has placed a community of prophetic people who see what he sees, hear what he hears, and speak what he would speak into that situation in the spirit with which he would do it. Are you tracking? Just blink once if you're here. Okay. And in the last days, number three, people call on the name of the Lord. When, when their world is falling apart, when, when people begin to cry out in their heart, when they begin to communicate their pain, we are present to speak words of life. Listen, calling on the name of the Lord in this context does not mean people walking down the street going, Jesus, save me. Because the fact of the matter is people who are far from God don't know how to get close to God. Calling on the name of the Lord means there is a heart cry deep within them. They are honest about their pain and honest about their suffering, and God is hearing that as a cry to him for help. And the God who hears that cry looks at you and looks at me and says, I have placed you right next to them for this specific purpose and this specific time. The people that Jesus ministered to, go back and reread the Gospels. They did not start with show us the Father. The people that Jesus ministered to started with, help, my world is falling apart. I can't see. I have leprosy. My brother has died. They didn't ask Jesus to show them the way to eternal salvation. They said, I hurt and I need help. And Jesus came alongside them in their pain. And something about the way he loved, And something about the way he loved and something about the way he cared for them led them, some of them, not all of them, to relationship with the Father. Here's the thing, church. These are the last days. We are the prophetic community. And it's our world that's falling apart. I use those words on purpose. When I say it's our world, we are the ones to whom God gave the creation mandate to make his world thrive. And so when we discover pain in our world, we have to see it as our world. We don't have the right in regard to our Savior and our Lord, if we are truly acknowledging him as king, to back away when it looks like the world's falling apart. Man, if we had a rallying cry to lead a charge, it should probably be, the world's falling apart! Once more into the breach, dear friends. That's why God has us here. That's why God has you here. We are there to respond to people who call out for help as the world is falling apart. 
when we hear their story, when we hear their pain, when we hear their fear, how do we respond? Call my pastor. Services are at 9 and 1045. Nothing wrong with those, but a better response is, what can I do for you? How can I help? And then trust. Trust that the Spirit of God that lives in you is present to help you in your response. God would not send you into the world asking people this question if he was not simultaneously willing to work through you to minister healing to them. This is why the radical relocation of God is so critical. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Where you go, Christ is present. Where people have pain and you are present, Christ is present to heal. This is freaking amazing. For me and those four people. I may sound excited to you. I'm trying to dial it back because I don't want to freak anybody out. Careful. All right. I'll do it next week. I'm out of time. Here's what I'm going to tell you, though. Thank you for permission. I feel like I don't have to always be restrained. I get so stinking excited, guys. God could have done this any other way. He spoke creation into existence. Hear me. He simply spoke his word. And the heavens were formed. The earth was formed. Light was formed. It was separated from darkness by his spoken word. But when he decided how he wanted to redeem his lost creation, when he decided how he wanted to reconcile people far from God to God himself, he didn't speak a word. He chose you. You were created from the foundations of the earth as a vehicle through whom God works. This is what he made you to do. This is what the devil is terrified that you freak out, that you find out. He's freaking out. Because when we begin to live in freedom, I don't have to be scared that I'm not going to have the right word. I don't have to be, I didn't go to Bible college. You don't have to go to Bible college to ask, how can I help you? I didn't, John, I didn't take the evangelism explosion classes. I don't know how to lead somebody to Jesus. Can I, okay, I'm going to mess with your head here for a minute. Your job, your primary calling, your primary responsibility is not to lead people to Jesus. It's to love people on his behalf as the Holy Spirit draws them. Do you hear me? Guys, this is important because if we don't have the right target, there's no way we're going to hit it. Don't, Don't misunderstand me. I want everyone to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I I want that passionately. But we have to be wise. We have to understand what our job is, why God has placed us here. If God had placed us here to gather and worship God, we could do that in heaven. This time would be wasted. He's got a bigger purpose. Our job is not to convict the world of sin, though some of us are really, really, really good at trying to do that. How do I know that? Because Jesus said when the Holy Spirit came, he would 
convict the world in regard to righteousness, sin, and judgment. It's not my job to convict people about their sin. But John, they're wrong. So was I. So am I. Probably at least half the time. Not this morning. This is true. Our job is not to convert people. Do you know the Bible has very little to say about how to convert people? Our job is to be Christ's witnesses. And we do that by being people in whom Christ lives and through whom he expresses himself in the world. We do this as points of incarnational penetration. We do this as the church on Monday. We are meant to be incarnational. We are not meant to be institutional. The institutional church says, come join me. The incarnational church says, can I join you? If you think, "Ah, I don't have enough time for this. If you think that the best way to please Jesus is to withdraw from people who don't know him, you are doing the devil a favor. Now, I'm not saying don't be wise, right? If you're an alcoholic, I'm not telling you to go hang out at the bars and tell people about Jesus. But if you have come to a place where your perspective on holiness is telling you that should you come in contact with someone who is sinning, you will be made unclean, you don't understand the nature of the forgiveness that Jesus has offered you. When he says, be holy like I am holy, take him at his word. Jesus, fully holy, spent a lot of time with people who, look, who others looked at him and went, why are you talking to them? She's an adulteress. He's a tax collector. They're sinners. We cannot bring the love of Christ into the world if we are not willing to walk into the world. With wisdom, with self-control, and with love and compassion. I'll say it again because I don't want anybody going home going, I think he said they don't have to get saved. It's, it's paramount to make people make a decision to follow Jesus. It's critical, church. But turning to Christ is a result. It's not a goal. Jesus said, I came to seek and I came to save the lost. Jesus never said, I came to convert and I came to capture. That kind of thinking is what happens when the church becomes an institution, not an incarnation. Jesus walked alongside people. Our job is to continue that mission, bringing Christ's love to the world, making his power and his love available. And be forewarned, some will reject that love. Others will accept it and then turn and go their own way, but yet others will turn and choose to follow Jesus. Not everyone Jesus loved. Not everyone Jesus ministered to turned and followed him, but he loved them just the same. By the time we get to Acts chapter 2, there's 120 left. Jesus walked all of Palestine ministering to people. Our job is to love people well, and we love them well by asking the Jesus question. What can I do for you? And then trusting that the Spirit of God that indwells us will help speak through us words of kindness and comfort. We are the church on Monday.
we carry the love of God to the people he loves who don't yet know that love. Can we put a pin in it right there? Okay. Good, because I'm hungry. Um, will, you, will you stand with me? I want to I pray for us. For us, the church of God. Lord Jesus, we are your people. You call us your children. We're called by your name. And Lord, I, I just want to begin by saying thank you so much, God, for the love that you have shown me that I didn't deserve, that I don't deserve, and yet you, you provide anyway. Lord, my hope, my prayer for myself, for my brothers and sisters in this room, those of us who make up the church of God, is, Lord, that we would be able to confidently walk forward in the understanding that your spirit has indwelt us, that you have placed us in culture to reflect not your judgment, not your condemnation, but your love and your mercy. And that those who begin to taste the love of God and the mercy of God would then be drawn by the spirit of God into relationship with God. We don't take that responsibility on ourselves. Lord, your word declares quite clearly, none comes lest the Father draws them. And so, God, we will posture ourselves and position ourselves in our homes, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces to be a people through whom you can show your love, your grace, and your mercy to this world that you still desperately love. Lead us, Lord Jesus, and we'll follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.